The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. We began looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we noted that the Apostle Paul had written a, a one, one letter earlier than the Second Thessalonians wrote to the church of Thessalonians, and we have it as First Thessalonians in our Bible. And we noted that in chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, Paul taught the Thessalonian Christians that the time was coming when Christ would descend from heaven, uh, down, not the whole way down to planet Earth, but to the air above the Earth, and he would, would rapture, catch up from the Earth, all born-again believers, those who died before their bodies would be resurrected, their returning souls and spirits with Christ would be reunited, Christians would be alive at the rapture, their bodies would be instantly changed from mortal to immortal, and so that Paul said that together the church saints would be caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, and then he concluded, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Once we meet him in the air at the rapture, from that time on, wherever Jesus goes, we go with him. But then in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul changed the subject to that of the coming day of the Lord, when God's wrath would be poured out upon planet Earth. And in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul said to to the believers, God has not appointed us to wrath, implying thereby that Christians will not be here upon planet Earth when the day of the Lord's wrath is poured out. And the reason they won't be here is because before the day of the Lord begins, they'd be raptured out of the world to go with the Lord back to the Father's house in heaven to begin dwelling in the mansions that in John 14 he promised he's preparing for his church saints. Well, we noted that sometime after Paul sent that letter, some false teachers came from Thessalonians and taught them that disturbed them tremendously. What they're saying is, do you realize that Paul now is saying that the day of the Lord has already come, and you're in it? And that really shook up and disturbed these Christians because that was completely contrary to what Paul had taught them in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And so in light of that false teaching that disturbed these believers, Paul wrote chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, in the second letter that he sent to them. And uh, he was uh, asking them to reject this deceptive false teaching that had been given to them. And he gave to them two evidences that the day of the Lord is not already here, and therefore you're not in it. He said there are two things that must take place before that day of the Lord happens, and neither one of those two things has, has not yet begun. And so the, the first thing was the apostasy. Our English translations say falling away, but the Greek literally is definite article the and the word apostasia. And the word apostasy refers to rebellion against God's rule and abandonment to lawlessness. And the fact that he says the apostasy rather than an apostasy indicates this apostasy was going to be totally different and unique. 
in contrast with all past apostasies, all past rebellions against God's rule and abandonment to lawlessness. Previous apostasies were uh, somewhat limited. Uh, Maybe just, uh, just a number of people and maybe in one geographical area of the world. But the fact that Paul says the apostasy, Greek scholars point out, he's saying this one is going to be worldwide universal. And they also point out, according to the Greek text, Paul's emphasizing it will be that from its very beginning. This is not something that's going to develop over a process of time. Once it begins, instantly, it's universal worldwide. And we indicated that the only way that could happen is by something triggering that, and the thing that triggers it is the rapture. Because when all the believers are removed from the earth, all of them worldwide, instantly the whole world's in unbelief. And it's under the control of totally unsaved people, and so instantly you have apostasy worldwide with people in rebellion against God's rule and abandoned to lawlessness here upon planet earth. So that's the first thing that Paul says must take place before the day of the Lord begins. And therefore, since the apostasy hasn't taken place, the day of the Lord's not here, and you're not already in it, as the false teacher said. But then Paul pointed out there's a second thing that must take place before the day of the Lord, where God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth, will take place. And that second thing is the revelation of the man of sin, the revelation of of the man of sin. Look, if you would, please, at verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul said to the Thessalonian believers, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, referring to the day of the Lord, shall not come, except there come, literally, the apostasy first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, literally, the word sin here means lawless. The man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, is what the Greek literally says. That man of lawlessness must be revealed to the world before the future day of the Lord's wrath will take place here upon planet Earth. Now, uh, it's interesting to note here that there are several things that we have to notice about this. If you look at verse 4, Paul talks about the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Some have taken that to mean that Antichrist is not revealed until he takes his seat in that temple and declares that he's God. Now, according to Daniel 9.27, Antichrist won't do that until the exact middle of the tribulation period because Daniel 9.27 says he'll put a stop to sacrifices and offerings there at the temple that the Jews will have reinstituted. And the reason he does that is to clear the way for him to go into that temple and declare that blasphemously that he as a man is God and that everyone should worship him. Well, some have concluded, well, that means, therefore, it's not until the middle of the tribulation period the, the Antichrist is revealed to the world by taking that, that seed in the temple and claiming that it is God. But there are several things that militate against that understanding. 
Several things indicate it's not in the middle of the tribulation period that Antichrist is revealed to the world. And let me just deal with these evidences. Interestingly, Antichrist taking a seat in the temple, that's an action that he is taking. And so what results is from what he has done personally. And if that's the case, then the implication would be he's revealing himself to the world. He's revealing himself to the world through that action he's taken. But if you would notice, please, look at verse 3. The end of it, the verse 3, the man of sin be revealed. It's passive voice. Passive voice means he's not doing this by his action. Someone or something else is revealing him. It's not his taking the action, going to the temple, declaring his God, that reveals him. It's passive voice. Be revealed. Look, if you would, at verse 6. And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed. Again, passive voice in his time. Look at uh, verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Again, the word wicked means lawless one. Be revealed. Passive voice, which means someone else or something else is revealing this man to the world. It's not something the Antichrist is doing that reveals him to the world. But someone or someone else is doing the action of revealing this man to the world. Now, the question is, who or what is it? And the answer is, and this may shock you at first, it's God who's going to reveal this man to the world. God declares he's the one that's going to bring that man upon the world scene. Now, how do we know this? What's some of the evidence for this? Well, first of all, notice in verse 6. In verse 6. Now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. In his time. The word that's translated time there refers to a definite fixed time. A definite fixed time. A time that's already been fixed, determined. The implication is in the past. It also has the idea of a specific and decisive point of time. A specific and decisive point of time. This strongly emphasizes, and Greek scholars point this out, this strongly emphasizes that God is the one who determined that definite, fixed, decisive time when this man will be revealed to the world. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, where uh, Christ has risen from the dead, now he's going to ascend to heaven, and the apostles said to them, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember what Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's the prerogative exclusively of the Father, of the Father. Jesus indicating God's the one who determines the specific and decisive points of time upon planet Earth when significant things are going to transpire. And so the very statement here that he will be revealed, he's not doing it himself, somebody else is doing it, in his time is strongly implying that God's the one that's going to reveal this man to the world. But there's a second line of evidence that this makes it very clear. If you would please, go back to the prophet Zechariah. 
Next to the last book of the Old Testament. We want to look at chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. And I'd point out to you that uh, in verses 12 and 13, it talks about a shepherd that came to minister to the people of Israel. Notice verse 12 of chapter 11 of Zechariah. And the shepherd is speaking here to the people of Israel. I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. Good shepherd came to Israel and saying, Give me what you think I'm worth to you. Notice what they give him. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. Back in Bible times, that was the price of a totally worthless slave who'd been gored by an ox and can't do anything for you. Here's a good shepherd that came to Israel, and he's saying to the people of Israel, you give me the value of what I'm worth to you. They gave him 30 pieces of silver. It was a way of saying the people of Israel say to him, you're no more worth to us than a gored slave who can't do anything. And notice what happens, verse 13, The Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was priced at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. You go to the New Testament, these verses are quoted. And the idea is, Jesus, the good shepherd that came to Israel, was betrayed for thirty pieces of silver by Judith. And you know, then he became under conviction and he took it back to the priests who paid him that 30 pieces of silver to betray the Lord. And they said, we can't take it back. And so he threw it down there in the temple. The 30 pieces of silver, he wanted nothing to do with it anymore. And they said, we can't keep that in the treasury here because that's blood money. So they went out and they bought a potter's field for people to be buried there, to be buried there. This was foretelling what would be done to the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd that God would give to the people of Israel. In light of that, look if you would please, verse 15. And the Lord said unto me, take unto you yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that stands still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to that idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up. His right eye shall be utterly darkened. It's as if God is saying, all right, if Israel's going to reject the good shepherd, with contempt. I'm going to raise up a different shepherd for the people of Israel. And notice one descriptive term for that shepherd, verse 15, is foolish. Is foolish. Uh, A foolish shepherd. Now, interestingly, uh, that word foolish in the Hebrew language has some interesting implications. It refers to a person who is morally perverted, morally perverted, he's rude, 
disrespectful, insulting. He's impatient with discipline. He does not fear God. He feels that his own way is without error. And he's overbearing in his attitude since he feels he has all the answers. That's all the meanings packed into the Hebrew word for the word foolish here. This shepherd that Israel's going to get is going to be that kind of a man. That kind of a man. Now, interestingly, when you look at different passages of the Bible that describe the Antichrist, he fits these descriptions. These descriptions here, the foolish shepherd. He'll be morally perverted because we're told later in verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's going to tell a great lie that he's God when he isn't. That's Example of moral perversion, perversion. And we're also told in Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 21 to 25, Revelation 13, 7, he's going to kill godly people. He's going to wage war against the tribulation saints upon planet Earth during that time. Uh, he will be insolent toward God, not fear God. Uh, we're told in Daniel 11, he'll speak monstrous, blasphemous things against God. Revelation chapter 13 says the same thing as well. He'll blaspheme God's name, God's throne, God's heaven. Very insolent, blasphemous against the true and the living God. And then Daniel eleven thirty six says he'll do according to his will. He thinks he has all the answers and he will demand that his will be the one that's put into effect and not somebody else. Then in verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 11 here of Zechariah, he's called an idol shepherd. Idol shepherd. I-D-O-L. And here the Greek, the uh, Hebrew word translate idol means something that's worthless. Something that's worthless particularly as an object of worship. Something that's worthless particularly as an object of worship. And it also stands for gods, small letter G, or idols, small letter I, idols. And that's what's going to be true of the Antichrist. What in the middle of the tribulation period, he takes that seat in the temple, gives the lie that he's God. He's going to be totally worthless as a god. He's not a god. He's just a mere man upon planet Earth. And uh, so that he's worthless, particularly as an object of worship, as a god. Now, the other thing we're told here is that he's going to tear the people of Israel to shreds, to shreds. He's not going to be a good shepherd taking good care of the sheep. He's going to tear them almost limb from limb is the implication here. And all these things describe what other passages give as descriptions of the future Antichrist. And notice God says... I will raise up this shepherd in the land. God's going to bring him upon the world scene, and particularly in the land of Israel, in the land of Israel. Now, right away you say, why would God do that? Why would God do that, particularly with this people of Israel? Well, let me point out what seems to me are five possibilities of why God would do that. First, to punish Israel for what it did with the Good Shepherd when it was given to the nation of Israel. And 
Apparently, Jewish people since that time agreed with that rejection of the Good Shepherd for 30 pieces of silver uh, to punish Israel. Uh, Second purpose God might have for bringing the Antichrist upon the world scene is to bring the repentance of Israel, the repentance of Israel. And, uh, you know, in Daniel chapter 12, the first couple of verses, we have a description of what Jesus, in Matthew 24, we heard about this morning, called the Great Tribulation, the unparalleled time of trouble. That's Jesus, in Matthew 24, is going right back to Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, in Daniel 12, once that unparalleled time of trouble, the Great Tribulation is introduced, three heavenly beings appear. Many believe the one that stands above the earth is probably the pre-incarnate Christ, but the other two are angels. And the two others ask the one that's standing above the, the earth, how long to the end of this troublous time or this unique time, referring to the unparalleled time of, of great tribulation. And the heavenly being that answers that question says 1260 days. Once this unparalleled time of trouble begins, it lasts for 1260 days. That's three and a half years, second half of the seven-year tribulation period. But the other response he gives is, this unparalleled time of trouble will last until the hand of my people is shattered. And the Hebrew text indicates it's the idea of a hand of God's people raised up in rebellion against God. And God says, I'm going to allow that second half, that tribulation, the unparalleled time of trouble, where Antichrist turns against the people of Israel and desolates them for that 1260 days. God says, I'm going to allow that to happen till the hand of my people of Israel is shattered. They're no longer in rebellion against me. This implies, this is one of the reasons God will bring this ungodly man upon the world scene to back his people so tightly into a corner that there'll be no means of escape from annihilation unless they finally repent of the rebellion against God and plead for their true Messiah to come to them. And you know, in the very next several chapters of Zechariah, 12 through 14, it's described that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. So another reason God would bring this false, foolish, idle shepherd upon the world scene, the man of sin, is to bring about the repentance of the people of Israel. I think there's a third purpose for God doing this, and that is to judge the whole world. To judge the whole world. We noted that the word apostasy means rebellion against God's rule and abandonment to lawlessness. That's going to happen worldwide instantly after the church is raptured out of the world. Well, notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the Greek how this man is described. The man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. He will be the epitome of lawlessness and rebellion against God upon planet Earth. And in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and God's saying this to Israel, but it's applicable to other nations as well, 
God points out that sometimes he gives a nation the kind of ruler it deserves. Takes away good, efficient rulers and gives them bad, wicked rulers. The kind that the nation deserves. And I take it, since the whole world, at least initially, once the church raptured out of the world, is going to be an absolute rebellion against God and abandonment to lawlessness, God's going to judge the world by putting them under the dictatorial command of the epitome of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Judgment upon the earth for its rebellion against him and abandonment to lawlessness. And I think a fourth purpose God brings them upon the scene is to expose the world's unbelief. The world's unbelief. Uh, be graphically displayed through the great multitudes of people who will end up believing Antichrist's lie and worshiping him. In contrast, acknowledging the existence of the true and the living God and worshiping exclusively him. And then I think there's a fifth reason why God will bring this man of sin or lawlessness upon the world scene, and that is to instigate the final showdown between Christ on the one hand and Satan's forces on the other hand. Ever since the fall of man, there's been a spiritual war going in the world between God and Satan, God and Satan. And that spiritual war is going to come to the peak of its intensity during that seven-year period that we've come to call the tribulation period, and particularly the second half, the unparalleled time of trouble in all of world history. Because this is when God is going to start moving in in a significant way upon Satan and his forces. Satan's been dominating the world system ever since the fall of man took place. God's going to bring that to an end, get rid of Satan and his forces to restore his kingdom rule upon planet Earth. But Satan is going to open up every arsenal he has to try to prevent God from crushing him and ending his rule of the world system. And so God, I think, brings the Antichrist upon the world scene to instigate the final intense showdown of the conflict of the ages between God and Satan here upon planet Earth. And just as God raised up Pharaoh, who despised and stubbornly resisted him and tried to annihilate God's people, so God's going to raise up the Antichrist who will despise God and try to eliminate God's people again. And to do this as the final showdown where God will finally crush his enemy, Satan. When Israel is so tightly backed into a corner as the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan have instigated the armies of all the nations of the world to come against the nation of Israel by the end of the tribulation period, God is bringing that to its grand climax here upon planet Earth. So, this again indicates that God's the one who reveals the Antichrist, brings it upon the world scene. Now, there's another indication of this. God makes it very clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the man of sin cannot be revealed until the restrainer, 
is taken away from planet Earth. The restrainer is taken away. Look at 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, if you would. Look at verse 6. Now you know what withholds. In other words, that withholds the revelation of the man of sin, that he might be revealed in his time. Look, if you would, please, then at verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. The Greek word translated let in some of our English translations means hinders. He's saying here, the Antichrist cannot be brought upon the world scene, cannot be revealed to the world until something or someone that's restraining him and preventing his revelation from taking place here upon planet Earth. Now, what's interesting is in verse 6, it says, what withholds? In other words, what restrains? That's a neuter gender word, neuter gender word. But then in verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity does already work only he who now hinders or restrains uh, will, until he be taken out of the way. What, why a neuter gender? And then we've got a, a personal pronoun, he, here. It seems to be restraining. Well, I'm totally convinced the restrainer here is the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, the Holy Spirit is not taken away in totality. It's only as a restrainer. The Holy Spirit's a convictor. The Holy Spirit's a revealer. The Holy Spirit is a seal. The Holy Spirit is an indweller. He has many ministries. He's a regenerator. But it's only as his restraining ministry that he's taken away from the earth so that the Antichrist can be revealed, brought upon the world scene. Uh, if, if his convicting a regenerating ministry taken away, nobody would get saved during the tribulation period. And yet Revelation 7 makes it very clear, great multitudes of people from every tribe, language, nation upon the face of the earth will get washed in the blood of the Lamb during the tribulation period. So it's only as a restrainer. We might say, but, but, but wait a minute, though. What about that neuter gender word, what, in verse 6? Now you know what withholds or restrains. What about that? Well, interestingly, the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is a neuter gender noun. In the Greek, the word spirit is neuter gender. But in the same context where he's called the spirit, is also referred to as he when he comes. Jesus, in, uh, you know, in the Gospel of John, he told the, the disciples that I'm going to leave you soon, but God's going to send another comforter to you, namely the Spirit, and he will do certain things. He uses the word spirit, neuter gender, but he will do He will recall to remembrance everything I've already taught you. And he will reveal to you more knowledge, more knowledge. In fact, in John 16, he said to them, during the corporate lifetime of you men that are here tonight, the Spirit of God, when he comes to replace me, he will lead you men into all the truth, indicating that all the revelation that God intended to come to the church would come during the lifetime of that corporate group of apostles who were there that night. His way of saying, before the last one of you dies, 
The church will receive all the revelation that God wants the church to have. Who was the last one of those men that died that night? John. Who wrote the last book of the Bible? The book of Revelation? John. The implication is, therefore, there are no prophets today receiving new revelation above and beyond the Word of God. But notice, Jesus called the, the Spirit, pneuma, neuter gender, but then he will do this, using a personal pronoun, indicating this is a personal being that I'm talking about. Now, to tie in with this, back in Genesis chapter 6, during Noah's day leading up to the time of the flood, God made this statement, my spirit will not always strive with man. You know, lawlessness was rampant back then, up to the days of the flood, to the point that God said that when he looked at man, he saw that every imagination of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. And the Hebrew word that's translated strive carries the idea to govern or to restrain lawlessness, to restrain lawlessness. And so, again, the implication even back then, the Holy Spirit had a ministry of exercising governmental control over to to maintain peace within society or restraining lawlessness uh, within society. And so that's going to be the ministry of the Spirit in the world up until it's God's time to reveal the Antichrist, to bring the Antichrist upon the world scene, upon the world scene. And so the implication here again is the only one that can, re- can remove the Spirit's restraining ministry is God. Man can't do that. Only God can do that. And so this again is an evidence that God's the one who will bring the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, upon the world scene for his sovereign purposes. A lot for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world as well. For the whole world as well. So just to wrap this up, Paul, as we noted from verse 1 of chapter 2 on Monday night, his whole purpose for writing this section of 2 Thessalonians is to protect and defend the truth that he had communicated to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5, namely, that the church will not be here on the earth when the day of the Lord, God's wrath being poured out upon planet earth will be taking place. The church will not be here. As he said again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, God has not appointed us to wrath. The opening phase of the day of the Lord is the tribulation period when God's wrath is going to devastate mankind and planet earth as the war between God and Satan comes to the peak of its intensity, peak of intensity. And so God is going to do this only after the church has been removed from the earth, as Paul was saying. And so Paul, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, says, We beseech you, brethren, by, and we noted the other night, the Greek preposition translated by means protection in defense of. So he's saying, We beseech you, brethren, for the protection or in defense of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. 
And we notice the Greek scholars point out, this is pointing out two things that brought together are one event. Jesus Christ coming and are being gathered unto him. Clear reference to the rapture. And so he says, I'm writing all this to you to defend that truth. You as church saints will not be here when the day of the Lord comes and the Antichrist is upon the world scene. You will be removed by rapture. Now let me just conclude with this. How will God reveal the Antichrist? We have the key to it in Revelation chapter 6. When Jesus, his son, breaks the first seal, there's a man who comes riding out on the back of a white horse. He has a bow in one hand, but no arrows. And many feel that's an implication. This man, at first, is going to appear to be a man of peace upon planet Earth. But later on, his true colors are going to come out. So that it's our understanding God will bring the Antichrist upon the world scene, reveal the Antichrist to the world when his son Jesus Christ takes that sealed scroll from God's right hand up in heaven and breaks the first seal. That's when the Antichrist comes upon the world scene and is revealed by God to the world. Not three and a half years later when he takes his seat in the temple and makes a blasphemous claim that he is God, that he is God. God our Father, we worship you together with your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit as the only true and living God. You are the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the sovereign, omnipotent Lord and God of this universe. You have the prerogatives of determining the seasons and the times. We bow before you. We worship you. We submit to you as the only true and living God. And we thank you that you've given us revelation of things you plan for the future and why you will do these things in the future. And we thank you for the blessed hope that you've given to us who have placed our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and Him alone to be our Savior, that you have not appointed us to be victims of your wrath when you poured out upon the unsaved world of lawlessness once your Son has removed His bride, the church, from the earth by rapture. For this we praise you. For this we thank you. For this blessed hope. In his name, amen.